Oh boy. You ready for this bold statement? The mechanics of walking and running should be the same. Keyword should be the same. Welcome to the Omega Sports Learn to Run podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Minard, pronounced Minard, and I am honored to be your host. If you're new, welcome. You vote on the topics, and I create shows and podcasts and content around that topic on all my social media platforms. If you are a regular, thank you so much for your support and continue to come back. It's been rewarding to see all the growth. If you're a visual learner like myself, check out my YouTube, Learn to Run, where I post this episode and I sprinkle in little visual examples to help enhance the learning experience. voted on topic. This episode is going to be about walking versus running. Walking versus running. And I had, I'll never forget, it was actually January 17th, Martin Luther King Day, 2022. I had this aha moment where I was running, I was working out. That's where I get a lot of my ideas. The brain juices are flowing. And I kept thinking like, what is the difference of walking, running, sprinting? What do they all have in common? What's similar? What's different? And it came to me. This direction is the same. Walking and running are the same direction forward, just different speeds. And reverse engineering, working backwards from that, had so many aha moments that I hope to share with you about efficient movement when it comes to going forward. So the three topics that we're going to go over, three questions. One, what are the similarities and differences, sim diff, as I like to call it for short, street lingo, of walking and running? Sim diffs, walking, and running. Number two is, can running be more efficient than walking? Can it be more efficient to leave the ground and run than it is to walk? Hopefully answer that question. And the third is, how to incorporate run-walk intervals into your programming, whether it be for injury prevention, rehabilitation, and or how to use it for performance. As always, what's some foundational knowledge that we need to learn about? All be on the same page before diving into these three questions. So foundational knowledge here, I want to go over what defines walking versus running. What's the difference? I'm going to go over one objective measure where it's cut and dry, yes or no, running or walking. And then there's some subjective where it kind of depends who you ask, different opinions, that's the subjective piece. So first, the one that we can all agree on is the number one objective measure to know if someone's walking or running is with walking, there is always one foot on the ground. There is never a time of this flight phase where both feet are off the ground. So walking, always one point of contact with the ground. Running, flight. There's a time where both feet and it's at different periods of time. It doesn't matter. As long as there's even a millisecond where both feet are off of the ground in flight, that's what defines a running versus walking. Now, let's go over jogging versus running. This is where it gets a lot more subjective. 
jogging versus running. Some people, you ask them what's the difference, they'll just say jogging is slow running. What the heck does that mean? Slow running. And in my opinion, so much of the confusion on education out there, and I'm always trying to be better and more clear, is when we're giving tips and teaching technique, we don't define what speed is it at. Because we'll talk about there's so many similarities, but there also are some differences. And some people try to emulate the mechanics of faster speeds at lower paces where we get into trouble with being inefficient. So others will use this 10 minutes per mile pace or six miles per hour, or 25% of you are outside the US, six minutes and 13 seconds, minutes per kilometer, that pace, that's what they'll use to split it. They'll say that if it's slower than that, than 10 minutes, then that's jogging. If it's faster than a 10 minute per mile pace, they'll call that running. I used to coach and I'm still a member at Orange Theory, they do, this is how they differentiate and define it. I've got this on play in my head from saying it hundreds of times. They'll say that power walking occurs between three and a half and four and a half miles per hour. Jawing is 4.5 to 5.5 miles per hour. And they'll say that running is 5.5 miles per hour or greater when differentiating between jogging and running and also power walking. But for clarity's sake, for this whole episode, I'm going to use jogging and running interchangeably, synonymous. But what's the difference? The objective difference is that flight time, both feet are off the ground, versus one foot always in contact with the ground. We'll call that walking and just running. So let's get into the first point. What are some of the similarities and differences of walking and running? Let's go over some similarities first. The direction, as I mentioned briefly before. Walking and running are both moving forward. The goal is forward movement. Doesn't matter your purpose, if it's for transportation, me to get from point A to point B or to go to the store. Doesn't matter if it's for exercise. The mechanics are the same. That's what doesn't change. Doesn't matter your reason, but the direction or the goal, no matter what, is moving forward with both walking and running. When it comes to landing, the landing on the ground, this is similar for both of them. The goal for each of these, whether walking or running, is to minimize this braking, this slowing down, this overstriding. As I go to lean forward, my lean, this will come in handy later, will dictate where my center of mass is, where my balance is. Because when I hit the ground, the further away from that point, my center of mass, the more the clock's running every second that my foot's in front of my center of mass, it's breaking or slowing me down. And then when my foot is directly underneath me and behind me, not slowing down anymore. So we'll differentiate between those two. So both walking and running, the goal, no matter what, is have the same exact landing position as close to the center of mass as possible. And we'll talk about later what actually differentiates that is the lean. The lean is what sets us up for that. So we'll get into that. Now, some of the differences, the speed or the pace. And again, I mentioned before what some of the other measurements were. This is what I tend to use. And we'll get into why this is is different 
where some people it is more efficient to leave the ground and technically run than walk. Depends on their, their height, different factors of their muscle, their genetic makeup. We'll get into some of that stuff, but the speed and pace is different. I use 4.5 miles per hour, or it's a 13, 15 minute per mile pace, or an 8, 15 minute per kilometer pace. If it's slower than that, walking. If it's faster than that, typically people will choose to leave the ground. So again, different than the objective of foot on the ground versus flight, this is the most common speeds that most people will differentiate the two walking versus running. Another difference, the step length, the distance that you cover the ground between each step. I always use the example if you were running on a beach and we just looked at just the distance between your footprints in the sand, that's your step length. We should see a clear difference between walking and running of how much distance there is. The faster that we go, there should be a greater distance. So with walking, typically it's 0.68 meters per step versus running is 1.2 meters. Again, differences pretty much less than a meter, over a meter. We'll see these differences in step length, whether you're walking or running. Now, step rate, the frequency, the cadence. I like to think about it in terms of hertz as a measurement of frequency. One hertz is 60 times, would be 60 steps in one minute if we're measuring steps. With walking, it's around 1.5 to 2 hertz, which is 90 to 120 steps per minute. So for walking, most of the time, we'll see somewhere between 90 and 120 steps per minute. Versus running, it can be anywhere from 150 steps to 180 steps per minute, or 2.5 to 3 hertz. Those are our differences. The degree of lean. The location of the lean is the same. We want to lean forward, bring our center mass forward, hinging at the ankles, not at the hips. Make sure we're leaning. With walking that degree of lean, if we're measuring the trunk, it's around one degree to five degrees for walking. And with running, it's anywhere from six to 10 degrees. I talked before about using a clock analogy, where if someone is a 12 o'clock posture, if you're looking at them from the side, they're not leaning at all. And if it's a one o'clock posture, they're leaning so far forward, the only way to get there is to actually hinge at the hips, which keeps your center of mass back, which slows you down. So the six to 10 or this 1230 posture for going with the clock is the ideal amount of lean. So I always try to, again, the three core components, there's so many factors, but what I've whittled back to what are the three most core components of efficient movement mechanics, there's the three things. First, arms are moving forward and backwards in sync with the legs, assisting the legs reciprocally. The second was the lean, leaning forward, hinging at the ankle, the ankle. And the third was that glide to be able to move purely horizontal and leave the ground versus leaving the ground and going up, that bounding. So the three components were arm swing, leaning, and gliding. And some of the things that I've talked about before as far as ways to remember them, 
when it comes to the arms, we talked about a handsaw. So with, with walking, our arms are straight. With walking, we bend our arms to 90 degrees, but their arms are still moving forward and back. My upper arm, if you only look at my upper arm by my bicep, it's doing the same thing. What changes is the elbow. Arms straight for walking. We bend them up to 90 degrees, help with mass movement inertia, and we're doing more of this handsaw forward and back, forward and back, not up and down like axing. The second was the ankle, hinging at the ankle, the way to remember it, the lean, the hinge occurs at the ankle. And the third one was the gliding, the push with the tush, the PWT of how you propel your body forward is using the hips, the glutes, to push the ground backwards to move purely horizontal. So here's the thing, when it comes to walking or running, all those three components are still the same. They still hold true. The difference is they're amplified. So same component, we're still swinging the arms forward and back, we're still leaning, we're still gliding, we're still using a hip strategy, but we're ramping it up, kind of like on a gas pedal. When we go, we drive forward, we're still moving forward, same engine, there's different gears, whatever. But as far as what you do with that pedal is you're just pushing down either further to the ground or letting off. Same with walking versus running. All these three principles still hold true. It's just, are we doing something more or less? But the, the technique is still the same. Which leads me to, before moving on to the next section, an actionable summary. What can you actually think about to do what it is we're talking about? So this actionable summary of when transitioning from walking to running, here it is. First was the arms. Bend your arms to 90 degrees. Think about holding that handsaw. Then you would increase the ankle, hinge a little bit further forward. We're talking about walking to running. And the third and the most common that's a learned skill is the gliding. Push the ground back more forcefully, further, and faster with the tush. Let me say that again. Transitioning from walking to running, arms and 90s, we're hand-sawing forward and back, we're hankling more, we're leaning further forward, and we're pushing the ground back more forcefully, further distance, and faster, which has to do with the step rate or the frequency. Always back to the tried and true analogy of the paddle for when it comes to just speaking about this propulsion piece. If I'm in a canoe and I have a paddle, how I move forward is I put the paddle in the water and I push the water back. That's the same as me using my leg, my hip strategy on the ground, pushing the ground backwards to move forward. So to run faster, we push more force with that paddle through the water, further back, we're pushing further back the water behind us, and we're repeating that on a more frequent basis. That has to do with the faster. More force, further, and faster. When we're going between speeds, this is all it is. Arms still stay the same bend. They're just swinging in sync with the legs. They're matched up. Our leaning forward and back, it's like a throttle. The faster or slower we go. And then just how far, how hard, and how quickly you push the ground back will differentiate between efficient mechanics at different speeds. Point two, can running be more efficient than walking? Can there be a time at a certain speed 
where it's actually more efficient for you to leave the ground than stay on the ground. And again, quick tangent, running efficiency, this is how I'd like to, to break it down. The goal of moving forward of running and walking is going forward. So we talk about paying on the principle. Let's say the principle is forward movement. That's our goal. The money that we're spending, the energy that we're exerting, if it doesn't go towards that goal of moving forward towards the principle, it's wasted energy. It's inefficient. It's paying on the interest. So ideally, it's impossible to have 100%. You can get close, but it's impossible to have 100% perfect, efficient mechanics where all the energy that you're exuding is going directly towards moving you forward, but we can get pretty darn close. So is there a time where you'll actually have higher payments on the principal or lower interest by running versus walking? So I'll post this. I did a video, did an experiment just to show this. We did this back in the day in undergrad, University of Toledo, exercise science, one of the labs where we had, we did the same exact thing where we use a treadmill so we can keep the speed consistent and set it to one speed. So here's what I did. I set the treadmill to five miles per hour. And then for one mile, I forced myself to stay grounded, never having this flight phase. Then rest, recover, repeat, and then did where I allowed myself to leave the ground. What do you think happened? So I took a little three-minute snippet from each of those. And so what you'll see is for the walking, my heart rate got up to 129 beats per minute. I burned 27 calories versus running was 125 beats per minute. So four beats less when it came to running, 21 calories. That's our direct measurement of energy expenditure. I burned six less calories running than I did walking. The step rate, the cadence for walking was 129 steps per minute. And the running was 150 steps per minute at five miles per hour. So let's not get this confused. When we, if we're, your goal is to burn calories and exercise and to lose weight, of course, we want to burn more calories, but with more energy expenditure, with more force can come the higher risk of injury. So if we can be more efficient and do it for a longer duration, paying the principle, that's a win-win. So why did this happen? There becomes a point with everybody where at a certain speed, you're moving forward. I asked you to accelerate and say, walk as fast as you possibly can, but don't allow yourself to leave the ground. There'll become a point, and it's a strategy sometimes I use to teach people how to run, where you're craving leaving the ground. You're taking such long steps. You're running out of real estate. You're trying to quickly move your extremities, but your arms are straight. Your legs are straight. So it's a lot slower. It's like moving through water. Well, there'll be a time where your body will actually want to leave the ground, but to move forward. Instead of taking a big, long, huge stride with walking, we'll shorten up our stride by pushing the ground back, leaving the ground, but then increasing our step rate, the number of steps. 150 times I took a step versus 129. So 150 steps at five miles per hour was more efficient than trying to walk at five miles per hour. So how does this apply to you? What does this mean? The main concept with this is how can you apply this to your running? Well, this is it. If you're in a race or you're in a long run, those times you're like, ah, I just need to walk just for a minute, a couple minutes. 
what if it would be more efficient for you to actually run or technically jog? Instead of trying to stay on the ground and walk and walk really fast, what if you just did a very light jog, barely leaving the ground, arms are still bent to 90, minimal lean, pushing the ground back? What if you could be more efficient doing that? So this is where instead of just walking, what if you fluctuated between running and jogging for your recoveries? Just an idea. Just knowing that you can, I just want you to have in your mind to know that walking isn't always more efficient. There are times where you could still make up, keep your pace, keep your speed, have that race to the clock, race to the finish, trying to get a certain time. Allow some active recovery of your heart rate to come down, but still keeping a decent clip, decent pace. Third, this is, I've used this so often. I'm going to talk about two different ways we can use this. So run-walk intervals, where you're fluctuating between running and walking for both injury prevention, preventing getting injured if you're just getting started, or for rehabilitation, you've got an injury, shin splints, knee pain is a way to allow us to get back slowly, incrementally into running. Or for performance, how can we use run-walk intervals to get faster? That's when a lot of times people are like, what do you mean walking can get me faster? Let's talk about the first one with rehabilitation or injury prevention. So think of it this way, walking to running, just impact alone, how much force your body is taking. We talked about to move faster, we're pushing further and faster back, but also more forcefully. More force to get more speed, but more force our body, our tissues have a limit. And so as far as walking versus running, you can blanket statement simply say that walking is less impact than running. So I've used before in the analogy for shin splints, episode four, season one, where I talked about using an analogy of the sun and sun exposure to the body, like impact to your body. Too much sun exposure, we get burned, which is a form of injury. Too much loading or impact can cause bruising or excess loading to your tissues or an overuse injury or an overloaded injury. So what walking versus running does is when I use the example of, let's say you're going out in the hot sun and you go out in the sun for three minutes, but then you go under the umbrella for a minute. What do we do? We allowed some quick minimal recovery or a break from that exposure. So when you're going from running to walking, we're taking a step back, we're dialing back the impact. So as far as how much total exposure you get, it will be less. Everybody's got a certain point of where too much too soon, where the tissues start to get injured, and we're trying to stay below that. The best thing is your body is incredible. With time, you can handle more sun without getting burned or injured. You can handle more load without getting injured, but this can be a way to strategically get less load if you are either real rehabilitating an injury or you've just started, you haven't done any impact in a long time, and you want to make sure you stay under that injury threshold. So I talked in season two, episode three, I believe it was, about getting started with running, how we can use intervals and time and duration of those intervals to systematically improve. For example, you might do 30 seconds of running, 90 seconds of walking. This would be for someone that is brand new, higher acute levels of pain, because what? They're getting three times as much recovery or less impact or walking than running. 
30 seconds on, 90 seconds off. With time, we can start to do a little more dosage. We can do 30-60, 30-30, versus towards the end, as we're progressing, we're doing 90 seconds of running and only 30 seconds of walking. Same with the analogy of the sun. We can get to the point where you can go out there for three times the amount of time as you are under the shade and slowly be building that threshold. Another example I like to think about this is if you've ever had allergy shots or allergy testing, the key is adaptation. Our body is incredible. Our bodies can adapt to almost anything if done slowly enough time to allow the recovery. Where they go, they test you with your allergies. They see what you're allergic to. And then they say, all right, you're allergic to this. We want to try to go after this. Let's give you just little tiny doses over time. But we have to space them out so your body has time to adapt. And slowly, incrementally, we'll increase the amount of what you're allergic to to the point where you're not allergic anymore. Probably 15 years ago, I got allergy tested when I was a kid and said I was allergic to both dogs and cats. I had a dog for 10 years. Last time I got allergy tested, guess what? I was no longer allergic to dogs, just cats. So just having that exposure over time, anything, our bodies can adapt to that. Never forget that. Absolutely incredibly amazing is that our bodies can adapt to almost anything. Situation, physical, mental, emotional. We just have to allow it to happen over time. Little tangent there. Next, though, let's talk about how run-walk intervals can be used for performance. How can we get faster by incorporating walking? So I've talked before about gear one, gear two, and gear three as far as running intensity. Gear one is an intensity or an effort that you can run where you can still hold a conversation. Gear two, you can get a couple words out between breaths, but not much more. If you're running with such an effort level, such a speed that you can barely talk or get one word out, that's gear level three. So what we can do is instead of going and fluctuating between gears two and gears one, where we're going a little bit more uncomfortable, pulling back and allowing that recovery, you can run to the effort where you need to walk, not want to walk. We always want to walk after running hard, right? But if you can do intervals at gear three, where when you're done with it, it's not a question. You actually need to walk versus want. And we fluctuate this, call it sprinting or gear three running and then walking. What that can do is that can get our body, one, there's a couple benefits to that. One of the byproducts of aerobic exercise is lactic acid. That's what causes fatigues. That's what shuts it down. As we go faster, higher intensity, it creates more of this byproduct of the lactic acid, which causes fatigue. We can get our body used to handling and adapting that. So with time, our body can metabolize lactic acid more so it doesn't fatigue as much. So you've probably heard of people talking about lactate threshold or this even increasing your steady state, your gear one, by getting your body used to handling lactic acid that occurs at higher intensities. So not only that, can it make you faster overall by going from gear three to gear zero or walking, but also the legs. It's almost like a leg workout. You're using your legs more, faster, higher speed, higher turnover rate, more force. So it can actually get your legs stronger. So same before, instead of doing this, this run to walk, we're doing run to walk, but then instead of a running at a lower gear and walking, now we're doing gear three and then walking. So same idea, 30 seconds, gear three, running with higher intensities, 
and then 90 seconds of walking, recovering, and then repeat that. Maybe two days later, maybe this is twice a week where you're going to increase that, where you're going to do more running for longer periods, less walking versus at the end, maybe you're doing 90 seconds of gear three and only doing 30 seconds of walking. But here's the thing, true, true gear three, where you need to walk, not want to walk. It's a speed that you can't hold more than two minutes, let's say. There's different energy systems. If you're able to hold a pace for 10 minutes, that's not your gear three. That's probably your gear two. Truly, we all have end limits to truly the energy system be able to go that fast, that high amount of oxygen demand. It only can happen at certain speeds. So if you're doing this right, you can't do it for much more than a minute, two minutes tops. So that's a way that you can use this running and walking on intervals to help get your body used to lactic acid more, help with your pace, help to reduce fatigue, and help to work and strengthen your legs more. Let's go over some of the key takeaways from this. The key takeaway one was the flight time is what differentiates walking versus running. But here's the golden nugget. The flight time when you're off the ground Ideally, is when you're moving horizontal, you're moving forward, not up and forward. That's the key. That's what I'm trying to say when I try to say, take away the bounding, let's glide, push with a tush, take the jump out. It's this. Yes, you want to leave the ground, but it's to move further horizontal. And I could see if someone's running the same speed in the sand on the beach, the distance between each step can give us an idea of how efficient they are. If there's slower or lower distance between each step, but they're running a good speed, they're most likely spending time going up in the air and then forward instead of just purely forward. Here's the other thing. I know that we've done this before. Episode 15, season one, what part of your foot should you land on? Landing on anything but your heel, your forefoot or your midfoot, means you're going vertical. Let me say that again. To land on anything other than your heel is inefficient. I talked about the arm swing. I talked about the leaning. I talked about the propulsion, the gliding. What did I not talk about? The landing. The landing should be passive. We shouldn't be thinking about that landing. We should be thinking about the pushing the ground back, thinking about the lean. If we're thinking about our feet, we're thinking about our landing. Most often, what we'll see is people won't lean at all. They'll be focusing on picking their feet up. They'll be focusing on just the, the landing part where it should be passive, by you just focusing on that lean, it sets you up. You don't have to think about it. Don't think about the landing. I give you permission to only focus on the lean because guess what? The lean is what's going to set up your base of support, set up your center of mass so that you land and load at a location that's very close to your center of mass. You don't have to think about the landing because you're thinking about landing. Most often, you're going to be breaking or overstriding. So, The only way to not land on your heel, which is moving horizontal, like with walking, is to jump. So if you're pushing down through the ground and setting pushing the ground backwards, you're going to land on your forefoot or your midfoot because you're jumping. And again, running on flat level surfaces, it's unnecessary. We don't need to do that. So landing on anything other than the heel is inefficient. Talk about transitioning from walking to running. Three things happen. I'm walking. First, bend the arms up to 90. They're moving forward and back. I start to lean further more, keeping my hips stacked under my shoulders, not hinging in the hips, not pushing the butt back, 
I'm having my center of mass around my hips lean forward, meaning the, the lean is coming from the ankles. And the final piece is that the three Fs, F3, three Fs, propulsion, three Fs, you're going to push with the tush, more forceful, further and faster. F3, forceful, further and faster. That's your actionable thought when transitioning from walking to running. Talk about slow running may actually be more efficient for you than walking during races. So those times that you want to just walk, what if you rationalize in your head, I'm not going to walk, but I am going to pull back to allow recovery, but I'm still going to keep the mechanics the same, minimal flight time, minimal pushback, but my heart rate can actually recover more by doing that versus just walking. And then finally, we talked about run-walk intervals can be used for both rehabilitation and performance where whatever the stimulus is, whatever we're trying to adapt to, we do first and having some type of recovery after. We can play around the variable of how much time we spend at those at each, but a way to get used to running faster or running in general is to use these intervals fluctuating the force, fluctuating the intensity, and we can measure that with intervals with time and using ratios where we're either biasing more recovery or biasing less recovery over time. Runners, Learn to Run Club. It's been hot lately. I've had over 200 members in the last year and a half. I've got training plans, 5K through full marathon. I have the seven days, seven mechanics experience where I teach you one skill a day for 10 minutes for seven days to learn the lean, to learn the posture, to learn the gliding, the push with the tush. I also have the fundamentals out there, which is a test that you can do, 10 specific items or criteria that's necessary for running and to see where you stand and what can you work on to enhance that, whether it be hip extension, whether it be quadriceps strength, glute strength. It's a way that you can actually measure and tailor your exercises and your, your running routes to you specifically. Clinicians, I've got a certification out there, part A, part B, and part C. I'm going to starting to roll out in June in Ohio. I'm going to have a part A mechanics course. I'm slowly working on having these live events because that's the way to do it across the country in this year and to continue to increase those because I want to make sure as many of you have someone to work with you, whether it's on rehabilitation or performance in the future. Also, if you're not looking through going the whole certification, I have one course out, the learn to run method, where it's three skills instead of seven and using a tennis ball necklace for feedback, not video. So it's another way to kind of streamline it. And I go through that process with you. I'd like to thank Omega Sports. They are the sponsor of the show. They have been keeping the Carolinas running fast speeds for over four decades. They're more than just a running store, and I highly recommend checking them out locally or online. Of note, the views and opinions of this show do not reflect those of Omega Sports. For better or for worse, they are my own. If you want to vote on the topics, follow me on Instagram, learn.to.run, or email me at info at learntorun101.com. I know it's annoying, but if you could rate and review the show, it helps so much for our growth and get this information out to as many people as possible. The Omega Sports Learn to Run podcast is available on all major platforms. Until next time. Bye.